you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Welcome, you found the liberal soul. So for today's episode, I wanted to do a little bit of intellectual or philosophical housekeeping, if you will, because I guess more than anything, the intent of this is to kind of dispel, maybe not a myth exactly, but a maybe a canard of liberalism and liberal philosophy which is the idea of associating individualism with egoism. So for this, I've read a section of The Open Society's Enemies by Karl Popper. I could look up when it was published, I'm guessing in the 50s. It's just on my desk over there, but that's pretty far. I've already started recording. Karl Popper is a famous, I think a scientist and a philosopher, but he's quite famous for the philosophy of science in his other book, conjectures and refutations and he gives a catch a much more kind of like human-centered problem-solving element to the scientific method more than kind of like ontological purity or any such nonsense as that i remember i read the open society and its enemies which is a mammoth of a book it's like 800 pages and the kind of overall thesis of that text is that popper was arguing that sometimes purposefully and sometimes accidentally the ideologies that are anti-open and anti-freedom flow often intellectually through starting with some of the pre-Socratics, but then Plato onto Hegel and onto Marx. So he's certainly one of these classical liberals that I wish to resurrect to the culture, because I think Karl Popper had a lot to talk about that's relevant to us. And I mean, he wasn't writing that long ago, so it's not that surprising, I suppose. But I just think that he's... Um, a thinker not as known as his contribution to psychological and philosophical um, liberalism might necessitate or give him credence for. So on the, I have the Princeton edition of the Open Society and its Enemies, so I think it's chapter six, section five, page 96 in my book, Popper opens up a matrices that he's using to disabuse what later in the section we find are some of Plato's, turns out maybe not sincere, critiques of what he's calling individualism. Popper points out that there are two two ways of that the word individualism might be used. Individualism as a political philosophy in the sense that we don't have any better term to be opposed to the political philosophy of collectivism. And then the second one he talks about is egoism as opposed, as opposed to altruism. So 
Popper is pointing this out to show that how, even all the way back to Plato, this there's a bait and switch going on here. Individualism, as opposed to collectivism, is kind of what the West is, at least in its history. And there is plenty of writing on that. But individualism can be sometimes used as a synonym for egoism or selfishness. In this sense, or if you proclaim you believe in individualism or an individualist, it, you can be given that you don't care about others, that you're not altruistic. Popper very easily points out, well, no, you can use the word individualism as anti-collectivism as opposed to anti-altruism. Collectivism and altruism aren't the same thing. Hmm, interesting. I mean, you can look around the world right now at some collectivist cultures, and that doesn't necessarily make them altruistic to all of the members in their culture. Uh, here's looking at you, China. The collectivism of the ethos of China doesn't extend very altruistically to the Uyghurs at this state in time. It does not appear. So anyway, uh, Popper continues to point out where this is Plato's kind of bait and switch, where Plato writes, Plato, the part exists for the sake of the whole, but the whole does not exist for the sake of the part. You are created for the sake of the whole, but the whole is not created for the sake of you, which is collectivism. And it suggests if you cannot sacrifice your interests for the sake of the whole, you are selfish. So there's this bait and switch here again, where Plato is talking about how if you can't sacrifice for the whole, then you're selfish. But that's not an altruistic act. It's a collectivist act. Because the altruism, quote unquote, that you would be doing there is not for any particular person. It's for the state, which is an abstract, fuzzy entity already. And then he points out collectivism is not necessarily opposed to egoism, as shown by the table. Collectivism is opposed to individualism. But you can have some very egoistic actors in a collectivist society, and there's no dissonance there. There's no necessary logical errors. The flip side is that you can also show an individualist can be an altruist and sacrifice for other people. And this is where I've gotten this example from, but the example that Popper uses as the individualist altruist is the figure in history of Charles Dickens. So Popper writes about Dickens. Popper. It would be difficult to say which is the stronger, his passionate hatred of selfishness, that is, Dickens' passionate hatred of selfishness, back to Popper, or his passionate interest in individuals with all their human weaknesses. And this attitude is combined with a dislike, not only for what we now call collective bodies or collectives, but even a genuinely devoted altruism if directed towards anonymous groups rather than concrete individuals. An example of this would be Mrs. Jellyby in the novel Bleak House. So let's see. His passionate hatred of selfishness or his passionate interest in individuals with all their human weaknesses. So you might notice that Dickens doesn't write a novel on the plight of orphans. He writes a novel on the plight of Oliver Twist and the things that he specifically goes through. He doesn't necessarily write characters in poverty. He writes Mr. and Mrs. MacIver in... David Copperfield, and the and the hard life that they have to go through and the things that they go through to try and get out of it. He writes about specific characters in specific situations and has sympathy for them specifically. And again, it's kind of this across-the-board specificity that I think makes up the individualist altruist. And so there's this dynamic. There's the four things. There's individualist, collectivist, altruist, and egoism. But according to Plato, there's only two possibilities. He accords egoism to individualism or selfishness and altruism to collectivism. So he defines the good thing as part of the thing he's talking about and defines the bad thing as the thing that he isn't talking about. And so this is 
quite convenient uh, for Plato, it seems, because on page 97, Popper says, in fact, the emancipation of the individual was indeed the great spiritual revolution, which has led to the breakdown of tribalism and the rise of democracy. Now, this is super interesting to me in that, going back to that Dickens example, I think about I think about some of this rhetoric. This reminds me really of this NIMBY phenomenon that I've read about a little bit on the internet. I don't know. NIMBY is an acronym that stands for Not In My Backyard, and it kind of is to describe quote-unquote liberal-minded people who, let's say, want to help refugees or want to help homeless people or want to help mm, gang members or drug addicts or people struggling in society. That's, yes, we are going to help them. We're going to sell them. Oh, okay, so we're going to build a shelter in this neighborhood. Well, actually, I live in that neighborhood, so I don't think I actually want these kind of people around my house. For these NIMBY types which I think is a is a bit of a funny term, but I think the it, it grasps a real mental phenomenon in people is the not-in-my-backyard types. Talk is cheap, yes? There's a... For, for a lot of these, like, it's, it's a kind of an abstract concept. Homelessness, refugee, immigration, drug addict. These are, these are abstract categories and fuzzy, and you don't know anyone, so of course you want to help because you're a nice-minded person as opposed to the hard work, the actual longer, deeper, more further work, it goes to actually help a refugee, a specific one, to actually help a specific drug addict or a specific person who doesn't have a home. The individualist altruist humanizes these categories into specific people in a way that they can actually be helped as opposed to a more kind of symbolic or virtue-signaling type of thing where, yes, I want to help this group of people by saying I want to on the internet or something like that. The individualism brings down, uh, brings up something like a rise of democracy because it is a breakdown of tribalism because you can actually care about the individual person regardless of what quote-unquote group they belong to or whether or not they're part of your tribe. I love, this is why I think one of the reasons I love Dickens' novel David Copperfield is that David Copperfield rises and, and kind of moves through all sorts of different social classes, but because he's a good hearted character, he doesn't notice those more arbitrary second-order group overlays of the MacIvers or the Peggotty family, and, and he's quite unhappy when they are put on by the Steerforth and the Murdstones types in that novel. So I think Dickens is a perfect example of this individualist altruist. And then that bleeds in a little bit into the concept of justice. So back to justice for Plato is the health and harmony of the state. And Popper compares this as justice for Aristotle, which to Aristotle, justice is something that pertains to persons. And then he goes on to say that this is a form of justice from the Pericles era in Athens. And then when Pericles talked, this is Pericles, a quote apparently from Pericles, we do not feel called upon to nag at our neighbor if he goes his own way, which is compared to Plato, almost directly where Plato writes, the state does not produce men to allow them to go on their own way. And so this obviously <laughs> was a very fluid um, Fleetwood Mac <laughs> type of vibe into transition. It made me think of, okay, well, I think that there's a there's a positive form of this too in music and the arts. I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s, 
and the kind of individualism that is not egoism, but anti-collectivism is the kind of individualism that wants to live in a society that can let misfit weirdos still pursue their passions, go their own way to make great art for the rest of us. So I wrote down a couple names, like I was thinking specifically of Marilyn Manson, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, Billy Corgan from The Smashing Pumpkins, obviously ending in a tragic way, but someone like Kurt Cobain, who these people were all... Alanis Morissette is another great one. Alanis Morissette. So growing up, I loved music. These kind of characters are only possible... These kind of artists are only ever going to come up in, in an individualist society, not a collectivist society, because they are bizarre. They are more than one standard deviation from the social norm. They stand out. They have a peculiarity or two or three about them. They're weirdos. And collectivist cultures don't stand for that shit. They knock it down. They push it back. They beat it out of you. And it's interesting then to kind of view a society that's kind of caught in between these things. Because I lived in South Korea for three and a half years. And one of the interesting things about that was noticing how Korea is such a collectivist society in its cultural attitudes for traditional and historical reasons. But it has (laughs) now a capitalistic economic framework. So there are just these never-ending mass-produced boy and girl bands, K-pop bands that are cookie-cutter versions of each other. And there's just these terrible stories of the abuse that the people in these bands go through by managers and producers, etc., who just want the same thing with with just a like same thing different day that's basically all it is there's like dozens and dozens of these famous bands and i just i can't tell the difference between any of their songs and i've listened to music my whole life so that's like an indicative of the collectivist like there's just no real room and i'd be remiss to point out to my friend cindy that her favorite k-pop band bts is the one that has kind of bucked that trend and been able to go their own way so to speak and make their own money, have their own production. Now, from a musical point of view, I can't really also hear any difference between their music and other bands' music, but that's neither here nor there. What's that line? Perhaps funny, I'm bringing up Marx, but I think there's a Marx quote where the thing he said about Martin Luther is that, maybe it wasn't Marx, maybe it was somebody else, like, Martin Luther threw off the chain of the authority figure so that he could wear his own chains that he chose himself. (laughs) Something like that. Not that K-pop is chains, but all of this is to say, like, that's the kind of collectivist ethos around an artistic endeavor. It seems to me is a good example of that, is that you're just not getting anything. None of the weirdos get to go through because that's not what is wanted. Um, that's too many standard deviations away from the norm, as opposed to, you know, there's some sections around Seoul where I would say, and there were like bands around there that loved Green Day. They loved the Foo Fighters. They wanted to play that kind of rock music, that kind of rock music and the rebellious, the rebellious nature inherent in the tempo and style of punk music is going to be, is now and can, and will be continue, I predict, to be a huge hit in Asian cultures. And it's because I think it has an ethos of individualism to it where, and it's, it's not always healthy, but I, I just don't think you'd get a Trent Reznor in 
a collectivist society. So I don't think it's any mistake. I mean, I don't know. It's just a nice serendipity that Pericles wrote. We do not feel called upon to nag at our neighbor if he goes his own way, which is the opposite of the collectivist Plato. So again, nice bait and switch there, Plato, trying to make individualists into the uh, enemies or the ego into, into being selfish. No, I'm an individualist, which means that I want other people to follow their passions, even if they are taboo or socially deviant or several deviations away from the norm. I still want to support those. And, and that's not egoism. That's not, I mean, you could say it's for me because I get to benefit from the art, but also I want those people to flourish. There's there's a sincerity in a lot of those musicians, especially, but even someone like Bill Murray. Bill Murray is a, I don't think would be capable in a collectivist society unless everything he talked about was in line with the collectivist people. But Bill Murray unexpectedness and spontaneity are not good for the harmony of a state, let's say, because it's unpredictable. And so the kind of quirky individual is undermining of the law and order and equilibrium of a a state that takes care of everything for you, including your own artistic endeavors. And so Popper goes on to explain how Pericles adopts the uh, attitude of individual altruism in that we are taught never to forget to protect the injured. So this is one of the things. Plato talks about how individualists will never care about injured. Who's going to take care of them? Well, no, that's not true. That's still part of the ethos of an individual altruist, because this was a speech that Pericles gave, culminating in that young Athenians grow up to a happy versatility and to self-reliance. Yes, the collectivist state has no interest in a self-reliant populace, because to be not needed, collectivist states and power groups need to be needed. They need to be able to provide the services to people that people could get on their own if they had if they had a happy versatility and self-reliance, as Pericles would talk. So this individualism, united with altruism, Popper argues, is the basis for Western civilization. Christianity, love your neighbor, not love your tribe. And then he also recounts Kant, always recognize that human individuals are ends and do not use them as mere means to your end. And so I'm going to read out a couple quotes here from Plato, which I think (laughs) demonstrate how his thinking is a little bit unfair (laughs) and not even unfair, like intentionally dishonest. So there's a couple quotations here. They're a little bit long, but I think that they're worth the time. So this is Popper writing. Plato was right when he saw in this doctrine the enemy of his caste state and he hated it more than any of the other subversive doctrines of his time. In order to show this even more clearly, I shall quote two passages from the laws, whose truly astonishing hostility towards the individual is, I think, too little appreciated. The first of them is famous as a reference to the Republic, whose common, whose community of women and children and property it discusses. Plato describes here the constitution of the Republic as the highest form of the state. In this highest state, he tells us, and now this is Plato talking, There is common property of wives, of children, and of all chattels, and everything possible has been done to eradicate from our life everywhere and in every way all that is private and individual. So far as it can be done, even those things which nature herself has made private and individual have somehow become the common property of all. Our very eyes and ears and hands seem to see, to hear, and to act as if they belonged not to individuals but to the community. All men are molded to be unanimous in the utmost degree in bestowing praise and blame, and they even rejoice and grieve about the same things and at the same time. 
and all the laws are perfected for unifying the city to the utmost. Plato goes on to say that no man can find a better criterion of the highest excellence of a state and the principles just expounded, as he describes, such as a state as divine and as the model or pattern or original of the state, i.e. the form or the idea. This is Plato's own view of the Republic, expressed at a, at a time when he had given up hope of realizing his political ideal in all its glory. And then here's the second passage that Plato writes about, which is even more brazen. Plato. The greatest principle of all is that nobody, whether male or female, should ever be without a leader, nor should the mind of anyone be habituated to letting him do anything at all on his own initiative, neither out of zeal nor even playfully. But in war and in the midst of peace, to his leader he shall direct his eye and follow him faithfully. And even in the smallest matters he should stand under leadership. For example, he should get up or move or wash or take his meals, only if he has been told to do so. In a word, he should teach his soul by long habit never to dream of acting independently and to become utterly incapable of it. In this way, the life of all will be spent in total community. There is no law, nor will there ever be one, which is superior to this, or better and more effective in ensuring salvation and victory in war. And in times of peace, and from the earliest childhood on, should it be fostered. This habit of ruling others, and of being ruled by others. And every trace of anarchy should be utterly eradicated from all the life of all the men, and even of the wild beasts which are subject to men. <laughs> so as you can see, Plato has no time for anything that isn't collectivism in the way that is being framed here. And now here's Popper writing a kind of thought on this. Because uh, Popper was talking about how like there's been a lot of Platonists after this who have idealized these terms, and here's what Popper has to say about that. But we must also realize that those who, deceived by this identification and by high-sounding words, exalt Plato's reputation as a teacher of morals and announce to the world that his, ethic, that his ethics is the nearest approach to Christianity before Christ, are preparing the way for totalitarianism, and especially for a totalitarian anti-Christian interpretation of Christianity. And this is a dangerous thing, for there have been times when Christianity was dominated by totalitarian ideas. There was an inquisition, and in another form it may come again. That's uh, an interesting other discussion, I think, for another time about totalitarian versus individualistic forms of Christianity. I think if there were to ever be a real schism in Christianity worth talking about, that would be the one. Because I've often, I mean, I've always said that Jesus as moral philosopher is significantly more interesting to me than Jesus as son of God. So I guess I've failed the C.S. Lewis test there, but that's okay. <laughs> I can live with that. And so then the kind of the last main part of all of this that Popper talks about is how Plato very cleverly engages in some wordplay and some propaganda here to demonize individualism as he sees as he as he knows it to be one thing but says it's something else that is demonizable let's say so here's a quote from Plato friends have in common all things that they possess and then this is Popper's commentary this is undoubtedly an unselfish, high-minded, and excellent sentiment. Who could suspect that an argument starting from such a commendable assumption would arrive at a wholly anti-humanitarian conclusion? And Popper likes to will point out here that Plato was not necessarily always this way, and when he was under Socrates in the Gorgias, in the Gorgias, I don't know how to say that dialogue exactly right, uh, the quote there is, it's worse to do injustice than suffer it as opposed to later when Plato would have those other quotes earlier where injustice is totally fine if it's in service of the state 
or whatever that is. In later, in the Republic itself, there's more propaganda going on here because in the Republic, he makes Thrasymachus the voice of quote-unquote individualism, just doing whatever you want. Because Thrasymachus talks about how might is right, and there's like a sense of nihilism and certainly selfishness and egoism in Thrasymachus in the Republic. And cleverly, this is the quote-unquote individualist in the dialogue. So Plato is making a very much a straw man out of the individualism because, as Popper points out, this is the most rigorous argument against the ideal state that Plato talks about. And for us, more broadly speaking today, I think the idea of the form and essentialism and the static state of perfection that Plato talks about is part of what is dogging intellectual thought all the way to our day and kind of freezes in time specific ideas about something or other that if only we could get this right, we'd have the ideal society. And often it's not individual action, but groups or tribes, and the individual is subservient to the more important group. I guess what I'm saying is that part of the liberal soul dismisses this assertion out of hand and says, no, that's not the value system or the philosophical framework I'm working with. So I refuse to cede the first step in your argument, if an argument is even made, which uh, at least Plato had the decency to make an argument and state his totalitarian aspirations so bluntly (laughs) in this sense. Uh, If only modern would-be authoritarians would do us the favor of being so blunt. We'd save liberal thinkers a lot of time and effort. But why would we want that saved, right? comes with the territory. And then kind of the last quote from Plato that I wanted to read out here. Here is Plato. I legislate with a view that to what is best for the whole state, for I justly place the interests of the individual on an inferior level of value. And then the finishing sentences of the section are Popper's, and Popper says, he, being Plato, is concerned solely with the collective whole as such, and justice to him is nothing but the health, unity, and stability of the collective body. Regardless of how many weirdos come up through that collective body and want to go their own way. And this is just, I guess, a kind of attempt at not a PSA exactly, but just a a reiteration, because I've even talked to members of my extended family who have complained or or had um, misgivings about what they call individualism, but I think can be cashed out into this view of egoism and selfishness. And, And I'm just here to say, to flat out reject the premise, egoism and selfishness is not individualism. Individualism is understanding that I don't want to be a collectivist. I don't want to live in a collectivist society. I want myself and others, other specific people, and it can be anyone, and it's extended to anyone who wants to go their own way. Again, balancing that against a kind of John Stuart Mill-esque type of tension of um, your freedom to swing your fist goes as far as where my nose is. Because there were, you know, when, let's say, Billy Corgan or Trent Reznor were really popular in the culture in the 90s there were many many groups and people calling for censorship of their music videos and their negative influence and would love to quote-unquote cancel them (laughs) if they could have if canceling was a thing in the 90s which i guess it was just if the recording company wanted to but the reason that people like corgan and reznor aren't canceled in 
an individualist society is because the ethos of wanting to support people who are different than you, even if it's not what you would be like, needs to be alive in the hearts of men and women in that society. And I don't think it's not alive in the hearts of men and women in 21st century Canada, USA, Western world. But I think it's not articulated well. And I think it's been shouted down by the chattering classes who are in charge of and and influence a lot of our major institutions now, which still get a lot of airtime, such as the mass media and social media and politics. And I just think that it's not in our society's DNA to be collectivist. And I just hope that this episode today can add another tool into the toolkit of to be an individualist is not to be selfish. In fact, it is wanting to help specific people. And and I'm sure if you resonate as a liberal soul, there are plenty of people in your life who you want to help. People worse off than you, injured, suffering, going through a hard time. If you have ever felt compassion for another person sincerely and not because it was foisted on you by some do-gooder telling you how to do good, then that's individualism. That's individualistic altruism. And don't let the bastards tell you otherwise. So... Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is another episode of The Liberal Soul. If you want, you can send me an email, theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. You can follow on Twitter at liberalsoul87. And we have a page on Facebook you can like, available on podcasting apps. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good one. Mm